So, so God's justice. I think right off the bat, there's a couple of things that are really important to mention uh, when we talk about God's justice. Uh, one is that we actually, like, no matter who you are, um, uh, whether even if you don't believe in God, you really, if, if there is a God, you really want this God to be just. Uh, that is like definitely something that you want, because if God is not a just God and God is God, i.e. he is a being that has ultimate power and, and all that kind of stuff, and he's not just, well, then um, that's really bad news for everyone. Uh, imagine if you've got a parent who, um, you know, is rocking up and, and their kid just uh, is a little terror, a little nightmare, and they're, you know, eating junk food all day long and, and uh, whatever. On one level, you'd just be like, whatever, that's the parent's choice and, and that's harmless. But then imagine that kid going around, hitting all these other kids at the, in the playground and then, you know, uh, swearing in front of your other child. And, and all of a sudden, you kind of want that parent to do their thing and, you know, be, you know, judge their child or like discipline their child. Um, because otherwise, it's negatively impacting the broader, uh, well, the other children in the playground and whatever. So, same thing goes for God. You want God to be just because if God is not just, then actually he can't be good. Uh, if God does not want to punish evil and deal with evil, then he just purely, like you just cannot call that kind of a God uh, a good. The second thing that we just need to say right up front before we dive into anything more specific is um, this is a loaded topic. And it's loaded because of our own perspective on who God is. So every single person uh, here tonight, every person who has ever contemplated uh, who God is and, and, and thought about it, given it any kind of thought, they have a notion or an idea of who God is to them. And uh, they also have a notion of who they think they are. So some of us might sit here and, and think, you know what, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. I, you know, there's nothing I need to be judged for. Um, and that's going to color your perspective of, of what we talk about tonight. But also you might think, you know what, God seems like a bit of a, a dictator or he seems like a really, you know, whatever, like a whatever disciplinary or whatever you, you have all these preconceived notions about who God is. And that's also going to color your perspective. So I want to encourage you guys tonight, try not to, have any preconceived notion in your mind. And let's just literally read the texts that we're going to look at from the Bible and let's see what God wants to communicate about himself. Okay. So uh, let's pull up Genesis chapter four. Um, and before we dive into this story of judgment um, and, and God's uh, an illustration of what it looks like for God to bring justice, um, Let's define uh, justice, a, the, a biblical definition of justice. There are two words that are connected with the idea of justice, okay? Um, one uh, is the Hebrew word setakah, um, and that is uh, essentially a state of being just or in right standing or being justified. Um, we will see this word most often translated in our Bible as being righteous, okay? 
So sedekah. Then the second word um, that relates to justice is mishpat. And that is the Hebrew word that essentially is talking about an expression of justice. Uh, you know, uh, and an expression can be in two ways. It can either be retributive justice. So that's, in other words, what we see in the legal system, right? So there's a dude who robs a convenience store and then they stand before a judge and the judge deals out retributive justice where he brings about a punishment. He brings about a, a consequence for the crime um, and, and, and that is dealt to the person. But then there's also restorative justice. And this is where you see inequality in the world. You see, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, you see third world countries that don't have COVID-19 vaccines, for example, or you see, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, what we donated our um, Christmas appeal to, which was the um, uh, third world countries uh, giving them money to set up maternal child health programs because they're severely lacking in resources in that area. So restorative justice, justice that is trying to bring, raise people up. Another way to describe that kind of justice is charity. Um, so in the Hebrew language and in the biblical context and imagination, when we're talking about justice, we're not just talking about bring the pain, bring consequences. We're also talking about lifting people up and restoring them to a higher ideal, God's ideal. Um, and we're talking about what it looks like to be justified or to be in right relationship. And going back to the word sedeka, you can imagine that uh, to be just, um, to, to, to have sedeka, uh, to be righteous, um, that looks different for different people in different contexts, right? So you can be righteous uh, as a father when you discipline your child, when you kind of tell them, you know, naughty corner or whatever. And, and you know, obviously the, being a parent, you get lots of advice about um, this stuff um, these days and you never feel like you're doing it right. But, uh, or as a husband to a wife, there's a different version of, of being in right relationship or in right standing. Like it would not be appropriate for me to say to my wife, go to the naughty corner, you did something that hurt me. So righteousness um, uh, in being in right relationship, being righteous, Sarah's off screen, um, is to be, you know, there's different. And then therefore, what does that look like? The ultimate question of the Bible is, what does it look like for humans to be in right relationship, to be righteous before God? Okay, so that is like a little bit of a framework before we dive into the stories that we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at a spoiler alert. I'm just going to give you the three stories right up front. We're looking at number one, um, the uh, flood. Number two, we're going to look at um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then number three, we're going to look at how God's justice is revealed in what happened to Jesus on the cross. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's dive in to Genesis 4, um, and we're going to read from verse 18, um, sorry, from verse 8. Uh, and you can tell right up front, if you can see the title of your Bible, uh, this is not the flood. This is the story of Cain and Abel. Um, and the reason why we're starting here is actually because the story of the flood starts here. Okay, well, actually, it starts at the fall in general, um, but we're going to pick it up from here. So let's have a look. This is Cain and Abel's story. We're going to go from verse eight um, and just follow along if you can. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to endure. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and I will be hidden from your face, and I will be a wanderer and a drifter on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him seven times as much. And the Lord placed a mark on Cain so that no one finding him would kill him. So we're just going to pause there for a bit. So why, why are we picking up the story of the flood um, uh, at this point? The reason is because I want you to see the, the consequence of evil. The consequence of evil is not simply that, you know, Cain kills his brother. Oh, Cain, bad Cain. What a horrible person you are. Here's your, your judgment. No, God himself says that the ground is crying out in protest um, because of the blood that you have spilt, your brother's blood that you have spilt. In other words, there are consequences and ramifications of our evil and our sin that impacts everything around us, creation included. This is a pretty bizarre concept to kind of wrap your head around. But guess what? is repeated over and over and over throughout scripture. So this is an important uh, thing to, to get. So I want you to cast your mind forward to the flood. So imagine this is the first murder um, in existence. Imagine, and, and we're going to read how things degenerate from here, but imagine if just one person's blood is crying out to God and God is so angry and upset and so uh, hurt by this, Imagine what the ramification of multiple bloodshed, violence across all the land, multiple acts of evil is going to do to God. And we will, we will read it. Um, but then let's skip. Uh, the other thing that's interesting to notice here as well, before we skip forward, is did you see what God did to Cain? What his act of justice was? His act of justice was to declare over Cain what he declared over his parents, specifically Adam, right? Um, that the that he'll be exiled, right? Just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. And that um, uh, essentially the land would not respond to him anymore. Just like he said to Adam, uh, you know, you're going to try, but the land's going to just produce thorns and thistles and it's going to be hard work from here on out. God says the same thing to Cain, but amplified, like jacked up. And Cain here, how does he respond? He responds by saying, this is really harsh. But he also says, he, the way he interprets it is, God, you're hiding your face from me. Um, verse, uh, where are we? Um, uh, 13, uh, 14, I will be hidden from your face. So he's not just saying, oh man, this is a harsh consequence. This is Cain recognizing it for what it is, which is God is turning away from him. He has rebelled against God and God is turning away from him. This is another really important uh, perspective on, on God's judgment in general. By the way, little plug, we talked about God's judgment um, like a couple of years ago and before pre-COVID. And uh, we did a whole Old Testament to New Testament series and 
I took two parts on God's judgment. Um, so you can, if you want to look specifically more into the judgment thing, you can check it out. I think it's still on SoundCloud and the podcast and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, um, so we're not going to really focus on the judgment here, but, but the idea is that Cain looks at this judgment as God is turning his face from me. Now, look at this. Let's skip forward again, Genesis chapter four. Let's look at verse 23. There's this guy called Lamech or Lamech, and he is Cain's descendant. And this is what uh, he says in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So we got this guy, descendant of Cain. He's a scumbag. He's a multiple murderer um, by his own admission. And instead of being pretty hurt or broken up about it, he's boasting. He's boasting to his wives. He makes a little poem that he wants everyone to read about and, and, you know, to take note of that this guy is going around killing people. And this is something that he's boasting about. And he talks about uh, the consequence that, so again, Cain's response to God's, um, uh, to God's uh, judgment on him is God, like, this is really harsh. You're hiding your face from me. And he says, people are going to kill me. They're going to, they're going to take vengeance on me. And God says, because God does not want to perpetuate the cycle of violence. He does not want to see human beings continue to kill each other, even for supposed justice, right? Like, even if you're going to go around and say, that guy, Cain, he killed his brother, let's kill him. God doesn't even want that to happen. So what does he do? He marks Cain and he says, anyone who kills Cain, I will judge them seven times the way that I judged uh, Cain himself. God wants to put an end to human violence and human evil. He doesn't want it to perpetuate. And he does not want himself to perpetuate the cycle of violence and evil either. So he, he tries to put an end to it. But, but Lamech, Lamech, he doesn't view it that way. He views it as like, this is a, a, a badge of honor. This is a badge of pride to carry this, this state of being a murderer and this state of being a harsh, rough man that God will judge and deal with harshly and like, you know, come at me, bro, kind of thing. So that is, that is uh, I think, profound. And this is, this is the context of what we see going forward into the flood, right? And so let's actually look at the flood story, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to pick it up from verse five. So the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So let's just stop there. Did you catch like this? And then God will go and talk about the flood. Before God talks about the flood, did you catch why he's going to do the flood? Because he's really grieved. He's really upset. You know, if you want to color God as like some kind of like harsh taskmaster or whatever else, well, then we should be reading God was very angry and he wanted, you know, or if you want to color him as like petty or, you know, whatever, then he was jealous or that he was, you know, but no, 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 no. God was God was depressed. God would, God regretted it. It grieved him to his heart to see his creation come to the, because again, the ground is soaked with the blood of people that he did not want ever to die at the hands of 
any violence or any evil. And the ground is a testimony, is a, is a witness to the evil that humanity has perpetuated over and over and over again. And people like Lamech and all his other descendants, and it just gets progressively worse. And God has waited at this point, thousands of years, thousands of years have passed. God has waited, but he can't bear it. It grieves him. It hurts his heart. And so out of that place, God will bring justice. And that's something that we don't normally think of, that God will bring justice out of a place of grief rather than a place of like anger or, or whatever. But here it is. It's right here, plain, plain and simple and clear to see. So verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So um, here's the deal. Uh, God doesn't really owe human beings anything. God does not owe humanity or any, any of his creation. He doesn't owe them a second chance. He, do, he doesn't even owe them his involvement. Like God could have just pieced out at this point or could have completely wiped things afresh and let's start a new universe. Like, you know, let's go from square one. But no, God does not do any of these things. God says, I'm going to wipe the earth clean. Because again, the blood of the innocent has soaked the ground. So it's a natural response to kind of say, all right, let's, let's wash it clean. Yeah? And in fact, this thought is, again, picked up over and over throughout scripture and ultimately um, is fulfilled in, in what we see in, in Jesus and baptism and, and all these kinds of things. So the idea, and, and we're going to read about that later, but the idea here is that um, God is like, I'm going to wipe everything clean. I'm going to, I'm going to purify uh, what humanity has tainted, what evil, what the, what the evil of humanity has created. I'm going to make it clean. And again, he could have started from scratch, you know, all over again, but instead he looks and he sees Noah and to him, God is righteous. It's very interesting. I find it very interesting that the words here are that um, uh, again, uh, Noah was a righteous man. This word Zedekah, um, that, that Noah was uh, ascetic. He was a righteous man that he was blameless in his generation. We will, you know, if you go on to read the end of the flood story, you know that Noah does not like do the best decision. You know, he's not the greatest of guys, his children, there's a bit of dodgy things happening going on with, with them as well. So, but the idea is that he was blameless amongst his generation. That's good enough for God. He's going to run with it. Again, this declares a, a, something about God's character. It declares a willingness to work with humanity, a willingness to engage out of a place of love. And when we talk about God's righteousness, this is what it looks like for God to be righteous, that he engages with humanity according to his character. Yeah. Because again, what is righteousness? What is Sedeca? It is dealing, it is to be in right relationship. And so if he sees someone that could potentially be in right relationship or is in right relationship with him, then he will also be in right relationship with them because he is faithful in that way. And he is righteous in that way. Very complex. Like that's a very theologically dense 
concept, um, but but I think we can all grasp it. But like it has layers upon layers behind it, and we're not really gonna. Well, we're kind of gonna touch on it with the next story. But um, anyway, so uh, he what does he do? Verse eleven. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And again, it's just reiterating what we've talked about, but his, his, um, as we will go on to read in this story and, and we won't actually read the flood story itself, but as you do go on to read it, it is a story of decreation. Um, so it's it's God washing the earth clean from a human evil and 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 the violence and and the bloodshed and all these things that people have have done, but it's also God's absence. It's actually God hiding His face. What He did, what Cain saw that He was doing with Him, because as God hides His face, decreation happens. It's God's presence that brings about creation that brings about order it's god's absence that leads to decreation except for the ark that he uh, has his remnant the remnant of the people noah and his family and the remnant of the animals and his creation on it god is with them but he is absent from everyone else uh, so that is that story so god's justice what do you see when we when we contemplate God's justice in the story of the flood, I see a God who is desperately trying to actually restore uh, the tainting and corrupting effects of evil. You might look at this story, and many people do look at this story and see a God who just wants to bring the pain. But actually, I think the Bible is trying to actually give us a completely different picture here, which is that God is trying to actually restore and bring about um, some, uh, well, erase some of humanity's evil that has corrupted his world. Um, and so this is what we see in this story, in my humble opinion. <clears throat> and really, this is a microcosm of God's justice that we'll see over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Um, but anyway, that is that we'll hopefully see that together. So how are we going? Uh, everyone okay so far? All right, cool. The next story is going to be Sodom and Gomorrah. Man, Genesis chapter 18. Let's have a look. Um, so we're going to start from verse 16. Okay. So... Abraham has just met with God and two angels and they've appeared to him and they've just told him he's going to have Isaac um, uh, through Sarah. And this is after Abraham has been a bit of a scum scumbag and um, taken his wife's uh, um, servant uh, and, and made her a concubine and they had Ishmael and all of that stuff. So, that's all happened. Abraham's already sinned in that way, plus many other ways. But God has doubled down on Abraham on his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And uh, as God is leaving him after he has just declared that he's with him, he's going to give him a son. It's going to be his natural son through Sarah, his wife. 
Um, after he's just said all of that, uh, this is what we get in verse 16 in chapter 18. Then the men set out, so the men being uh, God and, and the two angels, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Those two words, um, Siddiqah and Mishpat, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry, the same word uh, that God talks about with Abel's blood um, to Cain, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So interesting, right? God here is about to investigate um, the state of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he is already deciding that if his investigation comes back positive, um, he will judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and he invites, and he speaks, this is not a situation where God's just having an internal monologue and we're getting it written down. This is God actually speaking these words out loud with Abraham hanging out there in the background. So God here is saying, hmm, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do to these, these cities that have um, had so much evil in them and, and their evil has cried out to me? Um, should I tell him what I'm about to do? You know what? Yeah, I think I will because Abraham, I've chosen him. And because through him, I'm going to make a people that will keep my commands and that will be a people of righteousness, being in right relationship with God and justice to bring about uh, both retributive and restorative justice to their citizens and hopefully through them to all the nations around them, all the world. So God says, because of this, yeah, I'm going to tell Abraham. I mean, I'm trusting him with this great mandate and, and I've chosen him for this great mandate. So I'm going, to, I'm going to trust him with what I'm about to do. And he's actually inviting Abraham in to his thought process. Imagine that God invites a person into his thought process of what it looks like for him to bring justice to whole cities. Imagine if God did that with you. He tapped you on the shoulder. He said, hey, just uh, FYI, you know, uh, the, this group of people, this city, this nation, this whatever, like, let me tell you how I feel about them. Uh, tell me what you think pretty profound. So he does this. Um, the question is, why does he do this? Um, and maybe we'll, you'll have an answer by the end of, of finishing the story. So let's keep reading. <clears throat> so then in verse uh, 22, um, the, oh, and uh, take note as well, God is not just simply going to go bring the pain. He's doing his due, due diligence. He is responsible and he is thoughtful and he does not uh, act um, impulsively. God is not an impulsive uh, person. Uh, verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, 
Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. We're going to pause here. So this is what we call intercession. This is the fancy uh, Christianese uh, term of, of someone who is engaging with God for the sake of others, um, uh, engaging and talking with God for the well-being and the welfare of others. Abraham here, um, uh, the way he intercedes, first he draws near to God. That's very important. Um, but secondly of all, the way he talks to God is he, he appeals to God's nature and his character. What that tells us is that, oh, yeah, Abraham looks like he is pretty righteous. Um, righteous, again, meaning not that he hasn't done things wrong, because we know that he's done things wrong. We, we already saw in the previous stories that he's stuffed up in some major ways, and he will continue to stuff up in some major way. Literally, the next story after this, he stuffs up. But, um, but the whole thing is that he is in right standing with God. He, he gets an idea, a glimpse, an, an understanding of who God is and engages with God in the appropriate way. Um, and this is the way to engage with God when we're talking about anything, but especially when we're kind of trying to understand his, his justice and his identity in the midst of justice. You don't come to God on your terms. You come to God on his terms. You try to understand him through his character, his nature, and through humility. Um, but also you can make your requests known, and Abraham does that. Um, but, but the idea is that God is God, and we are human, and therefore there is this, to be righteous in this context um, is not to do nothing wrong. Um, it is to be engaged, well, even though it is that too, but it's to be engaging with God in such a way where you know where you stand and where he stands. But Abraham here as well, I mean, he's got a bit of a vested interest in what happens down in Sodom and Gomorrah because his nephew is there, Lot. Um, but the idea is he doesn't say that. Um, no, if he's thinking that, we don't get an idea that he's thinking that, but he doesn't say that. He is talking from the perspective of the city as a whole. And he's thinking about what God would think about. He's thinking about, are there any righteous there? Would you really harm or hurt uh, people who are in right standing um, and bring justice or, or, or judgment on them? And God, uh, you know, like when we read this story and think about this story, we tend to think it's a negotiation. It's not a negotiation. Uh, God just continuously agrees let's let's have a look so in verse uh, uh where are we 27 behold uh abraham answered i have undertaken to speak to the lord i am i am who but i who am but dust and ashes but suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking will you destroy the whole city for lack of five and he said i will not destroy it if i find 45 there again abraham spoke to him and said suppose 40 are found there God answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
Then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry when I sp- uh, and I will speak. But suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, behold, I haven't undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So this, and we're not going to, again, we're not going to read the judgment that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah, but this story is an invitation for both Abraham and for us to consider um, the heart of God when he brings an act of justice, um, an act of judgment um, on such a place as Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is, I think that what this story is trying to show us is that God is compassionate. Um, God is someone who does not want to harm, especially harm those who are upright in his eyes. And uh, he is willing to engage with us and willing to engage with those who are in upright standing before him to get their, um, uh, their essentially, to, to allow them to, to wrestle with him about it, but also to develop in them what he has in his heart. Because ultimately, again, remember what God's words were at the very beginning. Abraham is supposed to be a conduit of God's, and through Abraham's descendants, him and his people are supposed to be a conduit of God's justice and righteousness to the whole world when they become a nation. So God is inviting Abraham into that journey, into that process. And we, as people who follow uh, this God, we are also supposed to be that. He invites us into wrestling and engaging with him about his heart over what is just, what is right, and how to bring about um, uh, justice, um, both reputative, even though that's not our place and, and that's a whole other thing, uh, but also restorative justice. Um, and and uh, anyway, so, and then look, if you go on to read the rest of this story, you find that Lot, even though he is considered righteous in God's eyes, um, Lot is a bit of a scumbag. Uh, he, right off the bat, he offers his daughters to be raped by uh, people who are attacking the angels who are coming to help Lot out. Um, and then uh, Lot is tasked with trying to rescue as many people from the city as possible, and no one takes him seriously. That's the kind of reputation that that guy has, even amongst his own family, not even his extended family have any sense of respect towards him to listen to his voice. And then on top of all of that, um, uh, uh, Lot hesitates to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, to, to leave uh, Sodom. And then on top of all of that, when he's forced out of the city by the angels who, who make a note to say that we're holding back the judgment until you leave, um, when he leaves the place, his own wife loves the city more than her own family and looks back and is, is, is um, also uh, destroyed by the judgment. And then on top of that, when Lot as a broken man with his two daughters are up in, in some mountain somewhere uh, with no hope for any 
well, I mean, you know, they're alive, so they got that. But instead of doing anything with that freedom that God has given them and the respite from judgment, they he gets drunk and sleeps with his two daughters. Um, this is a man who is broken. Um, and, and Hebrews 11 talks, well, the, the book of Hebrews kind of comments on this, but uh, he's a man who's broken by sin and evil that was around him that he didn't really fight. And this is a man that if he is righteous, man, it's, it's hanging on a thread. And this is a man that God chose to save. So if God's not saving Lot because he's necessarily truly righteous, and then he must be saving him for Abraham's sake. And then the question becomes, well, was Abraham deserving of God's mercy? And, you know, you can like make a very good argument to say that he was not uh, deserving of God's mercy. You can make a very good case that nobody, and in fact, I think that the Bible is intentional about that. No one is deserving of God's mercy. So then the real question becomes, well, why does God show mercy? Why does God relent um, from judgment and, and his pursuit of justice um, on some people? And, uh, you know, one answer would be that God is a fickle, mean, uh, hearted being who, who picks favorites and he's a bad God. That's one that's one way to take it. But God himself has a take, and it's in Exodus chapter 34, and it's verses 6 to 7. This is God's words to Moses when he appears to Moses um, in front of his eyes. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And this passage is loaded and it's that we could spend a whole series just on this passage. But um, the idea here and, and just in a really nutshell uh, is that God chooses his primary mode of operation he chooses to be a merciful and faithful god so when we talk about god's righteousness again righteousness is god's right standing like what it looks like for god to be in right standing god can't ever do anything wrong to us even if he wipes out the whole of human creation that's not evil for god like just so that you know that that's not evil for him but god is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. So for him to be in right standing and for him to be righteous, he is in line with those characteristics. And so therefore it is an expression of mercy, patience, waiting, dealing with people, even if they don't fully deserve it, but as long as they're trying and they're willing to engage with him, he's willing to engage with us. That And that's very difficult to wrap our heads around that would not be our version of justice um if we were to you know again you know look at look at let's say Djokovic's example you know you might have a hardline stance of this guy scumbag everyone else had to follow these rules he he's not meeting up to them kick him out and and you know and that's that is 
righteous or that is justice on one level but then there's another well i mean look i'm not going to defend the guy but look the whole the whole thing is that god's justice takes into consideration more than just purely do you deserve something or not because none of us deserve any sense of mercy whatsoever so god's righteousness and his expression of justice is actually not just in how he deals with human evil but it's also in how he deals with his own character and how he relates to us as human beings again very like we could go into this all day and all night and, and this is worth like doing its own thing on but um but we'll leave it at that for now and i hope i did not uh kind of upset anyone in what i just said or really seriously mess you up so okay um uh yes so let's look at the piece de resistance the the culmination of what it looks like for god to be just the the culmination of what it looks like for god to be righteous as well um and the, and what it looks like for humanity to be made righteous um this is obviously jesus so let's have a look at uh, romans chapter 3 we're going to look at verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been made uh, manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Very dense, like in a few sentences, Paul, like, you know, the whole um, scriptures and then like, uh, you know, interpreting how it's presented in Christ. Very dense. Uh, reread it, read it over and over and over again. Uh, go on a walk while you're thinking about it. It's beautiful. But let's just highlight a couple of things. So, <clears throat> so God's righteousness has been made manifest apart from the law. So the law and the prophets what the law and the prophets have stated, all these rules and all these statements about who God is and what his sense of justice and his, his ethical kind of standards are and all these kinds of things, that is in the law and the prophets. So that is a form of God's righteousness, like a form of what it looks like to be in right relationship with God and who God is and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But it has been made manifest separate to that too, even though the law and the prophets pointed towards the next thing, which is what Jesus did, who Jesus was, his life on earth, and then what he did on the cross and his resurrection and what he extends to anyone who have faith in him. That is now a manifestation of God's righteousness is what Paul says. So for God to be righteous, it looks like him judging and, and putting all the sin on himself, on his son, and then dealing with it on the cross, punishing it, killing it, putting it to death on the cross, giving it the right judgment that it deserves, which is death on the cross. And then because Jesus himself is both God and 
the only righteous human being that did not deserve to suffer and die was therefore found a, an appropriate um, and, and a, uh, um, uh, the only possible one who could take on, as Paul puts it, the propitiation, the one who takes on and, and kind of like took on the debt for us. So Jesus was that crucified on the cross, put to death, um, everything. And, and then Jesus was vindicated and justified and raised again um, because uh, of who he is and, and, and what he is. And uh, so that is God's righteousness in action. So all these other stories of God dealing with human evil, that's God's righteousness, but so is what happened to Jesus on the cross. Yeah. And then we are justified. So justice is brought on us because of what Jesus did. And we are made in right relationship because what is justification? It is being put back into right relationship with God. It is being made righteous again. So we are in right relationship because of what Jesus did. And that is how we gain uh, uh, righteousness. It's very like, you know, if you've been in the church for any period of time, like this is Christian, Christianity 101, like this is something we all hopefully know and understand, but like it's pretty profound, especially when you can see like the origins throughout scripture. So when people want to kind of talk about God has a double standard, God in the Old Testament was this way and God in the New Testament. No, God, God is, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There is no change. Um, Jesus is the manifestation. To someone like Paul, who was a Pharisee, who literally spent his whole life uh, immersed in the scripture, um, he sees no problem. He sees that Jesus is a culmination and a fulfillment and a uh, completion of what was before. Um, and, and so we, we, we hear his take on that. Um, uh, and, uh, it's interesting that he says in verse 25, uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Um, in other words, part of God's righteousness again is to be patient, to, to, to be what he said to Moses, which is a merciful God. Um, uh, but someone who will by no means not deal with with the guilty and, and with sin yeah so god's patience is actually part of his righteousness as well okay let's look at one one last uh passage first peter chapter 3 verses 18 to 22 and we're going to end with this for christ also suffered for sins once for all time the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to god having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism is now what's, uh, sorry, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. Again, very theologically dense here, and we'll, we'll try to kind of like break this down. But 
Bottom line is Peter has the exact same view as Paul, that God's justice and his righteousness is made manifest through Jesus, his identity, that he was just on earth and in his way that he became a sacrifice for us, that the, uh, that the just became uh, a sacrifice for the unjust and that he put his, laid his life down. He was put to death in the flesh and was made alive in the spirit. This is God's justice in action, um, is both an act of reputative judgment on sin and evil and dealing with it once and for all, but also a restorative act that raises not only Jesus from the grave, but raises all his followers who choose to call on his name and are covered by the blood of the lamb. So that's fundamental, yeah? So again, God's justice is not to bring the pain God's justice is to deal with human evil and to restore that which was lost because he is a good and loving God. And then he talks about, and we're not, I don't really want to get into this, but he talks about um, <clears throat> how he went, uh, Jesus went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. What the heck is going on here? You can read a bunch of commentaries and, and see a bunch of different uh, interpretations. But the one I like best and the one I think is, is happening here is that this sacrifice that Jesus makes, it echoes throughout time. It does not simply stand for those who come after Jesus. It is a proclamation all the way back to the ancients. And those who were faithful to God's call, the people that we've read about, people like Abel, people like uh, Noah, people like Abraham, uh, even people like Lot and Moses, people like them who were faithful to God's call, even though they didn't really know what they were doing, they didn't really see God clearly, and they didn't really follow God uh, 100% of the time, but they were trying as best they can. That proclamation of Jesus's sacrifice and his uh, propitiation, as Paul puts it, and his place, um, that becomes theirs as well. And so do those who are guilty, who rejected God. And, and Peter here particularly mentions uh, those who rejected what Noah was doing at the time that he was building the ark, because it would have taken a while to build the ark. And God would not have denied anyone entry into the ark um, if they chose. Uh, it just started with Noah and his family, but it could have been anyone. And he had quite a bit of time to prepare that ark and to build it. And everyone who saw him and who rejected him, uh, this is what Peter's talking about. He's saying that those people also stand under the procl proclamation of what Christ declares, which is that he is the self. So in other words, the ark is a, is a representation of Christ yeah, and the cross. And uh, the flood is what, anyway, so the, the point is, that um, the proclamation of Jesus's actions echoes throughout time and his activity on the cross and God's justice through what he did to Jesus um, is a witness to all people through all time. And no one can deny that. No one who stands before God can say, well, I was born before Jesus. No, it stands. It stands. And, and God was there and he is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And then he ends by saying, so now baptism is a representation of that for us, which is that we declare, we go through the water, 
Um, and we are cleansed just as God cleansed the earth of human violence and evil and the tainted blood that cried out from the ground, just as Abel, um, Abel's blood did. God cleanses us um, of all of that too. And we declare that when we rise up again, we rise as, as new creatures, new creations um, found in uh, not, not ourselves anymore, but found in the identity of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And that we now have right relationship with God, not because of us, but we have right relationship because of what he did on the cross. He is God's righteousness made manifest to all humanity through all time. And now when we take him on and we say that he belongs to us, um, he covers us and he becomes our source of righteousness. And so we live and we stand um, and we uh, engage with God through that. All right. So God's righteousness, God's justice. Um, again, you know, righteousness, Sedekar being in right relationship and right standing. God is righteousness. Uh, God, God is righteous and he deals righteously with us, not just because he deals with evil, but also because he deals in accordance with his character. And mishpat, judgment, expression of justice. Um, there's retributive, so the consequences of, of evil and, and judgment and punishment, but there's restorative. And God will never, I argue, I argue this, God will never deal out justice while also engaging with restoration. Um, and I think we, and again, through Peter and Paul's writings, um, we can see that the early church could see that and that Jesus is the manifestation of what that looks like, that God's righteousness in his being as he came to earth and also his both dealing with human evil and sin while also restoring us in the process. May we never forget and may we always come humbly before God um, as we engage with him over such matters because ultimately he is God and we are humans, but he does want to engage with us about things like this. He does want us to wrestle with him about it. And above all, he wants us to have Jesus as our source of righteousness and depend on him for everything. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we thank you for the time that we can spend together. Thank you for who you are and your beautiful story throughout the millennia. Uh, Lord, we just pray that we would see you clearly. We would see you the way that you would reveal yourself to us. And Lord, that we would follow you and um, worship you and, and be in awe of you as you rightly deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.